With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Lon He Chen, the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution and your moderator for today. Presently, the Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming, but hosting special virtual events, including this one. You can learn more about our upcoming virtual events or become a member by visiting www.commonwealthclub.org. We are grateful for the generous support of our members and donors and hope you will consider making a donation online or by texting DONATE to 415-329-4231. We also encourage you to like, subscribe, and share videos like this one with your friends and your family. During our program, we will have time for your questions. Please submit those in the chat box. Now it's my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Chris Wallace, Fox News Sunday anchor and author of Countdown 1945, the extraordinary story of the 116 days that changed the world. Chris joined Fox News in 2003 and became the first journalist from the network to moderate a general election presidential debate in 2016. Over his career, Chris has covered nearly every major political event and had exclusive interviews with world leaders, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, French President Emmanuel Macron, President Barack Obama, and President Donald Trump's first interview since being elected. Throughout his 56 years in broadcasting, Chris has won every prominent news award, including three Emmys, the Peabody, and the National Press Foundation's Sol Teshoff Award for Broadcast Journalism. Prior to joining Fox News, Chris spent 14 years at ABC News and also worked at NBC, where he moderated Meet the Press. Please join me in welcoming Chris Wallace. Chris, over to you for some introductory remarks about your book. Well, Lonnie, thank you very much. I, I have to say that uh, having this book tour, and the book was published uh, a week ago yesterday, uh, during the age of COVID, of coronavirus, is a little bit different because I was expecting to be uh, seeing all of you in person. Now, a lot of the book tour, I'm kind of glad I'm doing virtually because it is saving some wear and tear. But I, but I have to say that I really did want to come to the Commonwealth Club in person. I've been hearing about it for years, and I've uh, covered, uh, not as a, as a direct witness, but uh, covered events or uh, quotes, news that was made at the Commonwealth Club. And so I very much wanted to be there. And I hope when this is all a distant and bad memory that you'll have me back in person because I would love love to come. I just thought I'd tell you a little bit briefly about how I came up with the idea for the book and then the, the particular subject of the book, Countdown 1945. I had just thought for some period of time that I wanted to write what, for lack of a better term, I would call a history thriller. Um, you know, I think so much of history is written, we know what happened, here's why it happened, and there's a kind of 2020 hindsight about it. But as it was happening, there obviously, there were momentous decisions being made, a lot of tension, and a lot of uncertainty. And I thought, what a, what a, a more interesting way to tell the story. And I specifically came up with the idea of, of countdown, and that, you, you know, you, if you could find a beginning place and an end point, then you could count down the key moments uh, in that period of time. Uh, but I didn't have the moment. And uh, I got it in a kind of a curious way, actually, with a San Francisco native. Um, in February of 2019, uh, it was the day that Donald Trump was going to deliver that year's State of the Union speech. And Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, invited a number of us over uh, for what's called a pre-bottle, which is basically like a rebuttal, only you say everything that is wrong before <laughs> the other person has even said it. And I will say both parties do it. Republican speakers do it with Democratic presidents. Democratic speakers do it with Republican presidents. In any case, uh, Speaker Pelosi invited us to a room that I had never been in, even though I covered the House back in the late 70s for a year and a half, called the Board of Education. I'm sure some of you know about it from history. 
Uh, it, it was this hideaway that uh, Sam Rayburn, when he was Mr. Sam, the Speaker of the House, used in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, and, and they say the Board of Education, it was where he would bring people in, some of his political cronies in the House, to chat or to plot strategy or to have a Berman and Branchwater and maybe all three. So she was telling the group, and frankly, I think I was the most excited of this, this small group of television anchors, that we were in the Board of Education. And in fact, she said, we were all sitting at this table. At the other end of the table, that was where Harry Truman was. He'd been told the White House was looking for him. He dialed the White House up, and he was told, get to the White House as quickly and quietly as possible. And I suddenly thought, oh, no. And then he hung up the phone, and he said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, which I thought was a kind of curious exclamation. And I suddenly thought, I've got my moment. I didn't know then, but it, the 116 days from when Truman becomes president to when the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. And just very briefly, to give you an introduction, just to day one, April 12th, 1945. So Truman gets the call to go to the White House, and uh, he is the vice president, has been vice president for 82 days, but has basically been shut out by FDR and by uh, and, and his war cabinet. He had only met privately, although he was the vice president with President Roosevelt twice in those 82 days. So he goes to the White House thinking that he's going to meet with Roosevelt, that Roosevelt must have come back from Warm Springs, uh, Georgia, where he was taking a rest after the Yalta conference, and that somehow he had snuck back into town. And for some reason, he wanted to meet with Truman. So he gets to the White House, is uh, driven up to the North Portico. Ushers put him in the presidential elevator to go up to the second floor. And when he gets there, he's greeted by the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, who says to him, Harry, the president is dead. And Truman, who thought he was coming to speak to the president, now realizes he is the president. And he says to Mrs. Roosevelt, is there anything I can do to help you? And he says, Harry, is there anything we can do to help you? because you're the one in trouble now. So just to quickly wrap up this opening part, and, and this is what was so intriguing. I knew that the, the story would be interesting, the 116 days, but there are surprises and wonderful, almost novel-like details in every day and on almost every page of the book. So he's, he's sworn in as president. They call the cabinet, they call congressional leaders, they call uh, the chief justice, Harlan Stone, and they have to find a Bible. They, if they can't find a Bible in Roosevelt's White House, they finally locate a Gideon in the desk of the chief White House usher. Uh, it's brought into the cabinet room. They stand in front of the mantel at one end of the room. And uh, Harlan Stone says, do you, Harry Ship Truman, thinking that the S in Truman stands for ship, which was a, uh, a paternal family name, but of course, as I'm sure many of you know, the S actually stood for nothing. So Truman corrects him and says, I, Harry S. Truman. Uh, and they do the oath. And then Stone realizes that as he was doing the oath, Truman was holding the Bible in his left hand and he had his right hand on top of the Bible. So now he has to do it all over again, putting his hand up so he can swear and take the oath. Well, anyway, that happens. He tells his cabinet he wants them all to stay on. He says, I want your unvarnished advice until I make a decision, and then I want your complete loyalty and support. Uh, and everybody starts to leave, except for Henry Stimson, the 77-year-old Secretary of War. He had served five presidents. Truman would be his sixth. And uh, Stimson takes him into a private room and says, I have something very important to tell you. And he says, I need to tell you about a, a massive project, a top secret project to create the most powerful weapon in history. And that is literally the first that Harry Truman learned about the existence of the Manhattan Project and to build an atom bomb. Well, that's all that Stimson tells him. He says, I'm going to I'm going to leave. I want you to settle in. I'll brief you on this project. And, uh, you know, it, Truman doesn't make too much of it because he's so overwhelmed. He's now the president. He's now the commander in chief of U.S. Uh, war efforts to defeat the Nazis in Europe and the Japanese in the Pacific. And this is just one more boulder uh, on his back. So he goes home and says, I figured the best thing I could do is get a good night's sleep and come back and face the music.
And with that, Lanhi, I'm yours. You know, I think one of the, the remarkable things about the book is it, it does read like a thriller. And beyond that, you do get this tapestry of people that's sort of woven together really beautifully. I, I want to start by asking about Harry Truman, because he, he's one of the figures at the obviously at the center of this. And, you know, Truman remarks at one point or, or, you know, he remarks at one point in the book, you know, I was just a county judge 10 years ago. And, and now all of a sudden he's thrust into being the, the leader of, uh, of the United States and with the incredible responsibility he learns about with this uh, atomic bomb project. So did you get a sense in researching the book or thinking about the book, what prepared Truman to step into to, to these shoes? I mean, these massive shoes, FDR, in such a critical time in American history? Well, in, in a sense, he wasn't prepared. You know, there's a, a famous uh, title, nickname that Truman has had over the years, the accidental president. Uh, he got on the ticket in 1944, the summer of 44, the Democratic Convention, uh, because the Democratic Party elders, the, the power brokers, thought that Henry Wallace, who was the current vice president, was too far to the left. And a lot of them were worried that Truman... Uh, rather, that, that Roosevelt was not going to survive uh, a, a fourth term, and clearly he, he didn't get through more than three months of it, uh, and that whoever the vice president was would be the president. They didn't bring this up with Roosevelt, who thought he was going to live through the war and for a good time thereafter. But uh, so they wanted to get Wallace out and put somebody else in. And the basic reason they chose Truman, they, they said, was because they thought he would hurt the ticket the least. Truman, in fact, went to the convention in Chicago planning to nominate Jimmy Burns, who had been a senator, who had been a Supreme Court justice, now is handling the Office of War Mobilization, to nominate him for vice president. Uh, but the party really forced it on Truman, uh, and he stepped into the job. And, you know, I mean, I think you can say his, his just his inherent common sense and ability. Uh, he had, you know, he, he wasn't a neophyte. He had been uh, a county judge in the western part of uh, Jackson County in, in Missouri for years, and he'd served 10 years in the Senate. So he wasn't totally unprepared. But I don't think anybody thought, well, he's ready to step into the job right now. But, but he did. And he was famously decisive uh, in fact, one of the things that uh, that everybody noticed within the first 10 days, he had put his mark on the presidency uh, when they had cabinet meetings. Roosevelt used to regale the cabinet with long stories and not much got done. And uh, as Henry Wallace said, uh, not totally flatteringly, Wallace stayed on in the cabinet after he was ousted as vice president. He stayed on as Roosevelt's Secretary of Commerce, and he said, you know, I think sometimes he's got a decision uh, before he's got a thought. Uh, so he, he, but he was, had no problems making decisions. Do you get the sense that, uh, the, that the relationship between Truman and the other appointees, who, as you know, were, were pretty much all FDR appointees, did, did it remain um, you know, pretty good throughout the course of this? In other words, the, those appointees had to have been shocked by FDR's passing. And after that initial transition period, did you get the sense that the cabinet and, and Truman worked together quite well? Well, uh, not not that cabinet. He he moved a lot of them out pretty quickly, including the uh, Secretary of State Statinius, and uh, moved Jimmy Burns, who he liked a lot, into the job as Secretary of State. And he's with him in the summer of '45 when they go to Potsdam for a summit with Churchill and and Stalin, uh, and is with him as he makes a lot of the key decisions. He very much liked uh, Stimson. Uh, and and kept him on, and he was uh, very much uh, a key player in all the decision making. Early on in the book, you introduce the the character of Dr. Oppenheimer, who obviously is is key to this as well, because he's sort of a scientific lead in New Mexico who's looking after a lot of this. And and you also introduce uh, General Groves, a military uh, a person who uh, is largely responsible for the project. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about the civil military relationship, you know, because it's been in the news recently with everything that's gone on with with President Trump, but. I'm kind of curious to get your take on what enabled that relationship. It's a, it's a very interesting relationship between the two of them because they, at least from my reading of it, don't seem anything alike. No, and, and they weren't. Uh, uh, Oppenheimer was an absolutely brilliant physicist. He knew a half dozen languages. 
He learned Sanskrit so he could read in the original language a Hindu devotional poem, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and uh, the thing that was surprising, he everybody knew he was brilliant, but nobody knew whether he could administer at all. And in fact, there was great doubt about that. In fact, he became a very good uh, administrator and really uh, ran the, the scientific laboratories at Los Alamos. He was the scientific director of the Manhattan Project and very good at it. Uh, General Groves was a, a bulldozer of a man, big, burly, uh, and, and had that kind of a uh, personality. His big project immediately before the Manhattan Project was he had been behind building the Pentagon, which was by far the biggest building in, in the world at that time. And he had gotten it through uh, in, in, in short order, a lot through the aggressiveness of his power. He says in one quote in the book, he says that, you know, I know I'm intimidating and I use that to my advantage. Uh, and, and so now you get to the two of them. I really would say that from, from our, my understanding of it, that I would give more of the credit to Oppenheimer in terms of the blending of those two, because uh, Groves was, was somewhat frustrated with the opinions and you, we could say the, the prima donna behavior of some of the scientists. And uh, uh, it was Oppenheimer and, and, and a lot of the scientists bucked out at the kind of military order uh, and deadlines that Groves was imposing on them. And the one who seemed somehow to make it work between the scientists on the one hand and Groves and the military on the other was Oppenheimer to kind of keep everybody on board and keep the the, the ship plowing ahead towards the, uh, the ap- ac- research and then development of the atomic bomb. Another interesting character um, and an interesting relationship that, that I found uh, was between uh, William Lawrence, who was a reporter for the New York Times, who who essentially was given the opportunity to cover this whole thing. He was embedded with the Manhattan Project, went all over, spent time in all the different facilities, and eventually went over uh, for um, to, to to witness and to see the dropping of of the atomic bomb. Uh, it's it's really interesting because he's working so closely. You see this very close relationship between a member of the media. And and government officials, and it's a relationship that um, seems almost impossible in this day and age. And so, I, I guess I'm wondering how much of this uh, relationship between William Lawrence's ability to cover these events had to do with just the enormity and gravity of the time and the situation, versus just, in your opinion, a, a change in the relationship between the media and and uh, and those in government. Well, it's a very good question. I would say, let me me give you kind of my macro view. And and it was one of the delights of researching and then writing Countdown 1945 is the times and the the atmosphere was so different from what we see today. Uh, I'd done a bunch of interviews uh, for this, this book. And I said, one of my favorite things is that there's not a word about Donald Trump in this book, which is uh, not to either praise or, or uh, denigrate the, the president. But, you know, this was for somebody who covers 2020 politics uh, all the time in the age of Trump to, to kind of take a, a trip and immerse yourself in what was going on in 1945. One of the things you have to say about the Manhattan Project at, at the beginning uh, Roosevelt started it in 1942. By the end, there were 125,000 Americans involved in it, from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to Los Alamos, to Hanford, Washington, to the uh, 509th Composite Air Group uh, in Wendover, Utah. And for two plus years, 125,000 people, $2 billion, which was real money back in the mid 40s, um, not a word. Leaked. I mean, the fact that the vice president learns about it after he's sworn in as president, and that's the first word he gets. And the reason it becomes clear as you're as you're researching this book is because everybody is on the same side. There is a unity. There is a sense of the country pulling together, obviously, to, to win the war, both in, in Europe and then the Pacific, uh, and not to do anything that would get in the way of that. And, you know, I, I, one of the things I thought when I realized 125,000 people worked on it and nobody uh, blew the whistle is you, if you had 125,000 people working on a secret project today to bake apple pie, 
Uh, I think by day two, somebody would tweet, this is outrageous and I'm going to be a whistleblower because something is going on. That that seems not to have occurred to anyone back then. Now the story about uh, William Lawrence. So uh, General Groves decides uh, late in the project, the Manhattan Project, this is a great story and we're going to want it told right. And by right, he didn't mean, you know, told our way that we need it chronicled. And so he goes to the New York Times and said to the editor, remember, this is an American general, and says, I want William Lawrence, who was a very distinguished science reporter. He'd won a Pulitzer Prize in the late 30s at the Times. I would like him to come get off the grid. He won't work for the Times. He's going to be with us for as long as it takes. And and he will get, you know, the greatest story in the world, but he's not going to be able to say a word of it until after the, the story becomes public, but then he can report everything that he has found. And uh, they also brought Lawrence in, and Lawrence, you know, had a, a, it, there was, it's not like the, the divide between the media and government was, was not present, but it wasn't nearly as big a divide as it was. And ultimately, I think when he was told it was a great story, and he didn't know, neither he nor the editor knew what the story was, he signed on. And one of the things that uh, Groves liked about him, and then all the scientists in Los Alamos liked about him, is he had a remarkable ability to put complicated scientific theories and technology into very comprehensible sentences and and articles. Uh, And he was there for all of it. He was there in Los Alamos. Uh, He was there on July 16th, 45, when they test the bomb uh, for the first and only time in Alamogordo. And he writes at that time, it doesn't end up appearing in print until after Hiroshima, he introduces the phrase, the atomic age. He comes up with that phrase. Uh, and then he goes to Tinian Island. He's there with the flight crew as they prepare for the Hiroshima mission. He wasn't able to go on the flight because it was the first mission and they just wanted to have the bare bones crew of 12 people, but he did go on uh, the second uh, flight, the Nagasaki mission, uh, three days later, August 9th. Interestingly enough, you talk about the divide. Some years later, uh, and he he won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Hiroshima as well. Some years later, uh, a a group of reporters had decided that there was something tainted about Lawrence's work because he had been working for the government. He was on the government's payroll, and they said that he was basically writing press releases. So they went to the Times, and they went to Lawrence, and they demanded he give back his Pulitzer Prize, and they refused. Well, there, that, that's, uh, there are interesting parallels that people will draw between uh, the New York Times of, of, not parallels, but contrast, perhaps, between the New York Times of then and the New York Times of today. Uh, I wanted to pick up on something you, you noted there, which was this, this idea that we were really embarking with this project, the Manhattan Project, on a new age, a new, um, a new kind of warfare. And, and at one point you talk about there, there's a chapter devoted to or many uh, pieces of the book devoted to uh, Churchill and, uh, and Stalin and Truman and their interactions in Potsdam. And in, and in particular, the relationship, I, I want to get into the, the Churchill-Truman relationship. I think that's really interesting. But, but initially, um, Truman's trying to figure out how to tell Stalin about the fact that they've got this bomb, that the U.S. has this bomb. And um, talk a little bit about how that goes over the conversation between Truman and Stalin, and, and then more broadly, whether you think um, that we we launched an arms race maybe by developing this weapon and dropping it in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Would it have made a difference if the bomb hadn't been dropped? Would we still have had an arms race, given what those relationships were like at the time? Uh, that, that, I'm going to try to unpack that, Lonnie. It's a a very good question. Let me, let me begin. So, so July 16th, Truman wakes up in Potsdam, Germany, and he's there for a summit, the first post European, uh, European, the Nazi surrender summit, uh, to discuss post-war Europe, uh, with Churchill and with Stalin. And, you know, you talked early, right at the beginning about whether Truman was, prepared for the job. This is the one time where he seemed nervous and not sure that he was up to it because he knew he was filling 
Roosevelt shoes. Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin had had developed quite a quite a relationship, and in fact, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt had spent a hundred days together during the course of the war. Uh, and and he knew Truman did that he was going to be very much a junior partner uh, in this, and he wasn't quite sure he was up to it. In fact, he ordered up a whole tutorial because he wasn't that familiar with a lot of the subjects that potentially could come up in this summit. Uh, in any case, they it turns out that very day, July sixteenth is the day that they test the bomb for the first time. And and there was great doubt as to whether it was going to work at all. There were a lot of people, including Truman's chief of staff, who had been Roosevelt's chief of staff, Admiral Leahy, who said, it's a dud, it's the silliest damn thing we've ever done, and it'll never work. Well, late that night, about eight, nine o'clock at night, Truman gets word, uh, Potsdam was eight hours ahead of Alamogordo, New Mexico, gets word, in fact, that the bomb has worked. And so no, he's no longer the junior partner in this new big three. He's the one who's uh, got the most clout because he's got control of the atom bomb. So one of the big issues that, that Churchill and Truman discussed, because Churchill had been a partner with Roosevelt from the very beginning, and in fact, he kind of urged in the early 40s, urged Roosevelt to uh, to begin the Manhattan Project. So he was along for all of that. Uh, but Stalin had never been told about it. And finally, the bomb has been dropped. It works. And, and Churchill and Truman are discussing, well, do we tell Stalin or not? They decide they have to tell him because if they leave and then it's used in Hiroshima that he's going to feel, supposedly the three of them are allies, uh, that, you know, what... What's the relationship there? So they decide they have to tell him. But Churchill says, don't tell him too much and wait till the meeting's just about to break up. So finally, in late July, they agree today's the day that Truman is going to tell Stalin. So at the end of a meeting and and all of the Potsdam meetings were held in what was called the Sicilianoff Palace in Potsdam, which was a suburb of Berlin. Um, Truman, at the end of the session, comes over to Stalin and he doesn't even bring his own translator. He's just Stalin and Truman and the Stalin's translator. And they're talking. And Truman says, I just want you to know that we have developed the most uh, powerful weapon uh, ever. And uh, Stalin turns to him and says, well, I hope you'll put good use to it with the Japanese. And he leaves. And Truman is dumbfounded. What you know, not a question, not a tell me about it. How long have you been working on this? And Churchill, who is not in that group, but is sort of sees what's going on, the three of them together, and is, I think, also shocked that it was such a brief conversation, comes over and says, what happened? He says, well, I told him, and he said that, and he left. Um, well, the the answer is that that Stalin was interested he just wasn't surprised because, in fact, there was a Russian spy named Klaus Fuchs who had penetrated. He was a, another German emigre. He was, had come to the United States. He was working uh, at, in Los Alamos on the Manhattan Project. But he had been, when he had been in, in Germany, uh, he had been a, a supporter of the Communist Party because he saw, thought it was the one entity in Germany that might conceivably stand up to Hitler. So when he came to the States, he, he, he left Germany, but he didn't leave his devotion to the communist cause. And he gave a courier named Raymond a lot of the details about the bomb. And that had all gone to, uh, to Stalin. Stalin knew all about it. Interestingly enough, that day after Truman tells him, uh, somebody else reports and didn't really understand what the conversation was. But that uh, when I got back to the wrong quarters, he overheard Stalin talking to his foreign minister, Molotov, and Stalin relates what Truman had said. And they agree, we got to get going on this, meaning they've got to start beefing up their own atomic research and development program. And a historian later said that the nuclear arms race began at 7.25 p.m. on that day at the Sicilianoff Palace in Potsdam. And in answer to your question, do I think that it could, could the genie could have stayed in the bo- a bottle? Absolutely not. I mean, the, this all started in 1939 when Einstein wrote a letter to Roosevelt saying that this technology is out there and somebody's going to be able to figure it out. And I want the U.S. to do it because I certainly don't want Hitler and the Nazis to do it. So 
you know, whether it would have happened uh, with Roosevelt, the Manhattan Project sooner or later, because they had split the atom, they were going to be able to to take that atomic chain reaction and create a weapon. It was just a matter of time. You know, one of the things that does come through in the book is that, you know, Truman um, did wrestle with this question uh, of whether to, to drop the bomb. And um, maybe talk a little bit about the thought process that that he went through, the kind of input he got, and, and how he arrives at the decision he arrives at. Well, th- this is one of the most interesting parts of, of the book to me. I, I don't know if you folks know, but I spent six years covering Ronald Reagan uh, in, in, in the Reagan White House. I was the reporter, chief reporter for N- NBC. So, you know, I'm kind of a student of de- presidential decision making. And obviously, I think I've covered seven presidents over the course of my career. So I, I've always been fascinated by how they make their decisions. I, I'd say there are three, and I'll try to get through these quickly, three points about Truman's decision making process that really impressed me. One was he was meticulous. He was he he went over this material again and again. This was no snap decision. And you have to understand until July 16th, 21 days in to before the end of these 116 days, uh, the bomb had not been tested. As far as he was concerned, it was a science project until they could prove to him this actually works and can be used as a weapon. So a lot of the early conversations, as he sat down with Stimson and uh, General of the Army, uh, George Marshall and all the other uh, uh, members of his war cabinet, was an invasion of Japan. And the estimate that they got was, if you invade Japan, this is now the late spring and summer of 45, the war will go on until November of 46, and we project there will be a million Japanese casualties and half a million American casualties because the Japanese were only fighting more fiercely and more and were absolutely refusing to surrender as they got closer and closer to the Japanese homeland. So this wasn't drop the bomb or do nothing. This was drop the bomb or invade. And as it turns out, I think it was true that the, uh, an invasion of Japan would have been even bloodier. So that's point one. Point two was the Truman sought out dissent. He didn't always follow it, but he wasn't afraid by it. He wasn't put off by it. And in fact, after the bomb works, he has lunch in Potsdam with Eisenhower and Omar Bradley. Uh, and Eisenhower has been told just a few days before by Stimson about the existence of the bomb. And at lunch, even though Truman didn't ask him, uh, Eisenhower says, I don't think you should use the bomb because I think that Japan will surrender anyway. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it, that's that's what he says. And uh, and I don't think we should be the country to, uh, you know, to introduce this terrible technology to the world. I think it will hurt our moral standing. Well, Truman, as I say, didn't follow that advice, but he wasn't put off by it. Um, and, and I very much credited that as well. The third point I would make is that I think Truman's reputation, certainly, you know, before I began all this research, is that he is famously decisive. The buck stops here. I make a decision and I never look back. In fact, he he wrestled. I, I would say even agonized over this decision, as I think, well, he should have. Um, in Potsdam, he was having terrible trouble sleeping at night. He complained of fierce headaches, which he had whenever he was under stress. And, you know, one of the joys of, of writing history, as opposed to covering current events in, in, and uh, for as a reporter, is that I had access. One of the first things I did was went to the Truman Library and spent some time there and got access to his diaries. And the, he was a great letter writer to his, his mother and his sister and his, his wife, Bess. Uh, but particularly in his diaries, where he didn't have to be careful what he was writing, he, took, he described this bomb over and over as, as the most terrible weapon. And he described it in apocalyptic terms as the fire destruction prophesied in the Bible. So so he he wrestled with it. I think he he agonized over it, uh, and then he made a decision. But it was not an easy decision. So, what do you think the rationale was? I mean, the the I, I think it's very clearly, certainly in the book, it's very clearly understood what he's struggling with. They make the decision to drop the bomb in Hiroshima, but then they drop a second bomb in Nagasaki. D- did you, in your research or in your writing of the book, did you explore or think about the question of whether Truman uh, 
questioned whether the second bomb was necessary? Or was that just sort of a given after they made the decision to drop the first? Well, it, it, it was there was not a separate order, but uh, to, to do it. But but it was interesting when when Truman and Churchill talk about the bomb after the first test on July 16th, Churchill says, you know, we may need to deliver one or two violent shocks to Japan to get them to surrender. You have to understand also, Truman, what, there was one last part in his decision making. He wanted to give uh, Japan one last way out before uh, he dropped the first bomb and they uh, delivered the Potsdam Declaration, which was the three countries of, of the alliance that were at war with Japan. Which, and Russia was not in that at this point. It's Britain, the United States and China. And in that, they said, made all kinds of threatening remarks. They obviously didn't say uh, anything about the bomb, but talked about the utter destruction of, of Japan it, unless you give unconditional surrender and uh, the Japanese completely dismissed it. They didn't even give a formal rejection. The Japanese uh, government said we have to makusatsu it, which meant to kill it with silence, basically ignore it. So they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And then uh, Truman comes out. He's on a boat at that point, uh, the USS Augusta in the middle of the Atlantic coming back from, from Germany. Uh, and he makes a, a statement, a newsreel statement in his from his stateroom, uh, basically saying, you know, we, we will, can do this again and we'll do this again. And there is silence from the Japanese for three days. And it is on August 9th that they drop the second bomb. And, and you know, I, I, what I take out of that, Lanhi, is that, you know, people say, well, you know, we didn't have to drop the bomb because they would have surrendered anyway. We did drop the bomb. And they didn't surrender. And then we dropped a second bomb and they didn't surrender again. The military government in Tokyo still wanted to keep fighting. And it was only the emperor, Hirohito, who goes over the Japanese government and decides to deliver a radio address. And it was the first time almost any Japanese person had heard the voice of the emperor. And he's the one who unilaterally says, enough, we have to surrender. But if it hadn't been for him, the Japanese would have fought on not after one, but after two nuclear explosions. You know, the, the other, um, you talked about some of the, uh, the term, not the turmoil, but what Truman went through as he was making his decision. The, the other piece of kind of emotional challenge that that's really interesting for me in the book are these conflicting emotions of the of the airmen and the and the military folks who are involved in dropping the bomb for example the the crew of the Enola Gay a few of them expressed these emotions the the joy of success and the the likely end of the war coupled with this terror maybe of, of what had been unleashed. And in fact, one of the individuals you'll recall who was uh, says basically, my God, what have we done? Um, can you talk a little bit about those emotions and how those work their way through and, and what you see out of that? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit on this. Uh, the thing, the first issue was, I mean, this, this could be a movie all by itself is the jockeying for position among all the flight crews. They were the 509 composite group wasn't just one crew and one plane. There were, in fact, seven planes, seven uh, B-29 Super Fortress planes that were on this mission, uh, scouting the weather, uh, taking measurements, uh, photographing the explosion, uh, a backup plane on Iwo Jima. And everybody wanted to be part of the of the mission and everybody really wanted to be on the plane. They didn't know the vast majority of them. A few did, but most of them did not know that it was an atomic bomb. They just knew it was some new weapon that uh, they were told might be able to end the war. But everybody wanted to be on that mission. And in fact, there was a tremendous conflict between Paul Tibbetts, who was the commander uh, and the other hotshot pilot in this 509th was a fellow named Robert Lewis. And Lewis thought he was the best pilot in the group and that he was going to fly. And in fact, at one point, uh, Tibbetts says to him, look, Robert, you don't need to worry about it. You're going to be on the mission. And Robert assumes that means he's going to be the lead pilot. In fact, he's not. It just means he's going to be the co-pilot because Tibbetts, who is the commander, was always going to be the lead pilot. And in fact, they even get over a, uh, into a fight at the end because they use they end up using Robert Lewis's plane. And a lot of them had fancy names. 
His plane just had the number 82 on it. And just before the mission, uh, Tibbetts says, uh, I want you to paint to somebody else, you know, one of the ground crew, I want you to paint the name Enola Gay on the plane. And that was the, his mother's name, Enola Gay, who had always supported him. His father didn't want him to be a pilot. His mother always said, uh, you're going to be a pilot. Everything's going to work out OK. And you're going to make our family proud. Uh, and when when Lewis saw that, he came back and said, what the hell is that name doing on my plane? And Tibbet says, it's my mother's name. Have you got a problem with that? And even Robert Lewis had to sit back. Now, here's where I would push back on you, uh, Lonnie, respectfully. Uh, so they go on uh, the flight and Lawrence, William Lawrence, the New York Times pilot, isn't going to be on the flight. So he says to Robert Lewis, who's quite unhappy being in the co-pilot seat, um, I'm going to give you a log, you know, just write down notations of everything so I can have it for the historical record. So when the plane drops the bomb and there was great, this is part of the drama and sort of the thriller of this book, Countdown 1945, is they had no idea because it had never been dropped out of a plane, whether or not the shock waves are going to knock them right out of the sky afterwards. So as soon as they drop the, the bomb, they take a, a steep 180 degree turn and a dive to get away from the explosion as fast as possible. And once they get away, and the only one who actually sees the explosion in real time is the tail gunner, because of course the plane is headed away from it, who was a fellow named Bob Caron, who used to wear out of uniform, he used to wear a Brooklyn Dodgers cap for good luck whenever he was on a mission. In any case, they finally, uh, Tibbetts turns the plane around after they've, and when the shockwaves came, incidentally, and he could see these concentric win, uh, rings of the, of the shockwave coming towards the plane. And when it, when it hit the plane, uh, somebody described it as a giant with a, with a big pole beating on the plane. I mean, it really knocked the heck out of them, but it didn't damage the plane. Now, Tibbetts turns it around, and at that point, uh, Lewis writes in his log, my God, what have we done? But ever afterwards, they, he was asked, was, Do you, did you have second thoughts about that? And he said no. And in fact, interestingly enough, not a single member of the crew ever, at least publicly, expressed second thoughts about it. They all said it was a way to end the war. Uh, Tibbetts uh, said, you know, war is hell. People die. Uh, you know, to apply some morality when it comes to life and death in a war, you want to beat the enemy and end the fighting. Uh, none of them expressed any doubts. The scientists did, but not the military men. Uh, we were getting a couple of questions from from our audience, and and one was I thought was interesting was if if you could go back and ask President Truman anything, one question uh, during this period, what would that have been? Oh my gosh, I have not. You know, I've done a bit of a book tour, and I haven't gotten um, that question. Well. Uh, I suppose I would have wanted like William Lawrence to get the scoop, but be able to tell it first. I will tell you a funny story in that regard about about the media. So so Truman, uh, he, he gave express instructions to the military. He said I, the plane, the, the bomb can be dropped anytime after August 2nd because he wanted to be away from Potsdam and away from Stalin when the bomb was actually dropped. So he flies to England, has lunch with uh, King George gets on the USS Augusta and heads off across the Atlantic. And he's in, actually pretty close to Newfoundland when the bomb goes off on August 6th. Um, but as soon as the, as the ship leaves harbor uh, in, in uh, England, uh, he calls in the reporters. There were a few reporters, including the famous Merriman Smith, the legendary reporter of the United Press. And he tells them all about the Manhattan Project and all about the fact that they have the atom bomb and all about the fact that in the next few days while they're at, at sea, that uh, this bomb is going to be used to try to end the war on Japan. And Smith later writes that, he, you know, he's the, first of all, that Truman seemed ebullient about the fact that they had this project and they thought they could use it to end the war. Uh, and he, Smith, was excited, but he also said, it's the greatest story of my life, and I don't have a way to tell it. So, uh, I, you know, I guess the key would have been to get a, a leak of the story first. But, you know, I don't I don't think Truman would have given that to me. We, we have a number of questions about your observations about changes in the media environment, which we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, o over these last, uh, you know, five decades. 
Uh, what's your sense about about the biggest changes that that you would observe and note from researching and writing the book? In the media, in the right in, in the in the media and how the media uh, interacts. With- well, uh, you know, there was, and I and you could argue that all of this wasn't good. Uh, that there was much more of a sense that the the, the that the media that covered the president or, or covered these stories. Um, was much more not not subject to the government, but the much more. Uh, it was a much more collaborative, certainly not nearly as adversarial um, a, a relationship. I mean, think of the fact of FDR, who of course had polio and 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 uh, you know couldn't walk without without braces on his legs and crutches, uh, and the media didn't tell that story. I mean, you know, there was a, a feeling then of this kind of. Uh, mostly because it was men, boys club, and that, you know, there were certain things you reported and certain things that you protected. Now, that part of it I don't like. Um, And, you know, and I think it's better that we're more adversarial and more independent than they were then. On the other hand, perhaps have we become too adversarial and too much at uh, each other's throats, the media uh, and and government and, and particularly the White House, and not necessarily just the Trump White House. This didn't start with Donald Trump. We've seen that before. Um, yeah, I, I, I sometimes worry about that, 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 you know, we're in search of, of heat, not light. Uh, do you have a sense, uh, about, you, you write about sort of Truman's legacy and, and Truman's legacy, um, improving after he left office as, as it does for, for, you know, for other presidents maybe as well. Um, do you think that that transition of the contemporaneous assessment of Truman to the historical one is that something that other presidents might be able to experience in this day and age as well? Or, or, or have we just become so polarized and so um, set in our views of people that it's probably impossible for, uh, for, for people's impressions of presidents to turn in the same way they did of Truman? No, I, I think that can change. And I think, you know, in the last few years, I think you've seen, uh, for instance, uh, an improvement in the, the general historical assessment of Dwight Eisenhower, that uh, there was a feeling, certainly after he left office in 1961, that he kind of, you know, the country went to sleep for eight years. And uh, I think now a lot of people look back on things that Eisenhower did, and certainly, uh, you know, a lot of changes he made with the National Security Council, uh, the, the you know, his farewell speech about the military industrial complex and, and a lot of things he did in terms of, of, of the domestic economy and international relations. And I think he has a, a much better uh, reputation now than he did when he left office. That certainly is true of Truman, uh, who basically, you know, had thought about running for, for re-election because he could have uh, in 1952 and and there was no chance because he was a wildly unpopular figure uh, by that point. And then as, as time went on and people saw uh, the, the fruition of a lot of decisions he made, whether uh, it was integration of the, of the military or the Marshall Plan um, and on and on, uh, I think he's seen as a, a, you know, I think he's usually included in the top 10 presidents in history. Um, whether that's going to whether we're going to see a change in perception for all of our presidents, I'm not so sure. Um, we don't actually. It's interesting. You know, one of the things I noticed toward toward the end of the book is um, I, I guess I didn't realize that we a lot of Americans didn't know or didn't realize the extent of devastation in, in Hiroshima until this New Yorker article that John Hersey writes. Uh, I, I guess it's probably well over a year right after the after the bomb is dropped. And you note that public opinion about the dropping of the bomb continued to be very positive for for many years. Do you think if there had been a a more contemporaneous account, that would have been any different, that that the public would have felt differently about that decision? Oh, well, let me put it this way. They thought so. Um, And and one of the things that that I talk about in the book is that there uh, was a very sophisticated public relations campaign by the U.S. government to shape opinion about Hiroshima. So after uh, the war, and obviously the, the the William Lawrence articles, when they all came out, it was all about what, you know, this amazing discovery, this technological breakthrough in the military and the, and the, uh, the scientific community. 
Um, and, and the Pentagon put out a, a number of stories uh, itself about the, 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 you know, the history of the Manhattan Project and the, and the extraordinary accomplishments of the Manhattan Project. The good side was told in great depth. What wasn't told and what was hidden from the American people was the devastation on the ground. Uh, Douglas MacArthur was the head of the occupation of Japan, and they absolutely censored anything about what had happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A Japanese film crew went fairly shortly after uh, the, the bombing of Hiroshima uh, there to the ground and took video showing the devastation, and it was it was seized by U.S. censors. Um, and and it was, as you say, a year later that William Sean, the legendary editor of the New Yorker, thought there's a hell of a story here, and he commissioned a war correspondent named John Hersey uh, to go and and Hersey to give you a sense of what he had to do. He didn't come in the normal way through Japan. He came in through China. Uh, and, and Manchuria and, and sneaks into Japan the other way and, and gets to Hiroshima and spends weeks on the ground there. Uh, and then he doesn't write a word, which would have to go through censors. He flies back to the United States, to New York, and then he writes this 30,000-word uh, article. And, and it's the entire New Yorker issue. I, th- I believe it's in the summer of '46. Uh, and, you know, uh, Sean took out all the cartoons in The New Yorker. It's just the, the article. Uh, and it was a, a huge storm of, of interest and I think a considerable amount of outrage. It later was made into a book that, that late that fall of 46 and sold three million copies. It was a huge bestseller. Uh, and, you know, I think support for the war, for the ending the war through the bomb still was pretty strong because, you know, there was no great love for, for Japan. They had uh, Pearl Harbor, the attack there, a number of atrocities with the American soldiers who were taken prisoner during the war. But uh, it did change feeling uh, quite a lot about it in the sense that, you know, this, this hadn't been uh, a no-cost operation. Maybe it was worth it, but it had been very bloody and an awful lot, not just of military. It was uh, Hiroshima was a city of 250,000. Only 50,000 of those were military. So there were an enormous number of women and children who were killed too. The the book actually includes the perspective, uh, the, the sort of Japanese perspective, I, I guess would be the best way to describe it. And, and you tell it through the eyes of this uh, woman who we later find out is a survivor of Hiroshima, uh, Miss Tamura. Um, did, did you get a chance to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki at all during the research or writing of this book? And, and did you, um, sort of, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you see this story through her eyes and, and why do you include her? Well, I, I absolutely wanted to include her because it's part of the story and just to tell it, you know, the story of what the decision the Truman made and what the, uh, the, the breakthrough from uh, at Los Alamos of the scientists and the, you know, the, the jockeying and the heroism of the flight crews would, you know, be kind of to repeat the public relations campaign uh, that the U.S. military and government were engaged in uh, post Hiroshima. You know, I, there were there was a terrible price to be paid, maybe a price that was worth paying, but it was a price. So you couldn't ignore it. Uh, and, uh, so Hideko Tamura was a little 10 year old girl and she, uh, was on the ground there. It, just quick story. The, a lot of the Japanese, Hiroshima hadn't been hit at all. It was one of the reasons they wanted to hit it because they thought to take a place that hadn't been bombed at all, uh, and then have just this one bomb, it would be a, a tremendous demonstration to the Japanese, both physically and psychologically, of the damage that this bomb could do. Maybe it would get them to surrender. But the, the Japanese were sending their children away because there was firebombing. 100,000 people died in Tokyo. And so she was sent, Hideko, to a, what was supposed to be a school uh, out in the countryside, about 65 miles out of Hiroshima. But it was really a work camp, and she hated it. So she smuggled a letter to her mother saying, come rescue me. And her mother comes and gets her and says, well, why don't we stay out here in the countryside for a few days? And she says, no, no, you know, let's spend the night. And then I want to go right back to Hiroshima. They go back on August 5th and at, because of Hideko's uh, uh, demanding it. And of course, the bomb drops on August 6th. Uh, Hideko survives it. 
her mother dies. But Hideko uh, had gotten advice from her mother, had been drilled on what to do uh, to, you know, if there was just a conventional bombing, to get hide under something sturdy like a big table so that the rubble wouldn't crush you. And then once you got out, go to the river because there are going to be fires and explosions. And if you're in the river, you'll be safe. So that's how she saved her life. Uh, she lived there until she was about 17. She ended up coming to the States, went to Worcester College, uh, married an American and lives in Bend, Oregon. And I only talked to her uh, over the phone for the book, but we did a, a documentary, which if any of you want to watch it, it's on Fox Nation now. Uh, and sh- we brought her to Washington. And extraordinarily enough, this is one of the, you know, those great things, Lonnie, where, where truth is stranger than fiction. She said, I'll come on one condition. Well, what's that, Hideko? I want to see the Enola Gay, which is on exhibit at the, uh, at the annex of the Air and Space Museum out near Dulles Airport. So she came to Washington. We had a fascinating interview, which is all in the documentary. And then we drove out one morning to the, the annex. We got there before the museum was officially open. And I took her to see the Enola Gay. And she just, it's, first of all, it's huge when you're on the ground and this big silver super fortress is there. And she sees it. And I say, do you feel anger towards us? She says, no, I just feel profoundly grief-stricken. And then she said, but I feel a sense of closure. And she said, I want to say a prayer for peace so that this never happens again. And she said a prayer. And then she said, you know, I feel like this plane is an old man. And I think they should take it down and put it somewhere to go to sleep, that it's it's tired and it needs to go to sleep. And then she said, sayonara. And that was that. Wow. Wow. Do you ever see an end to this nuclear age? I mean, we're 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 at a time now where obviously North Korea does what it does. We have uh, you know China and India, two nuclear powers who are uh, you know seemingly at each other's throats. You have the the possibility of capacity in Iran. Do, do you see an end to this to this era? No, and um, and I suspect of your of your audience may I may lose them here. I I don't think there should be. And the reason I say that is because I, as a reporter covering Reagan, was in Reykjavik in 1986 when Reagan and Gorbachev discussed the abolition, the destruction of all nuclear weapons. And I remember that that Margaret Thatcher, then the British prime minister, was furious about this. And, and, you know, your immediate reaction, why? And because if, if no country has the nuclear weapon than the one country or power that does, or a terrorist group that does, suddenly has all the power in the world. You know, people have asked me, do you think that Truman would have dropped the bomb if another country had also had the bomb? And I'm, that's a very good question. And I have, I have doubts about that because, you know, when two countries have it, there's always the possibility that one is going to drop it and the other then will respond. And as, as insane as it seems, mutual assured destruction, MAD, uh, the geopolitical uh, nuclear arms strategy, has kept the peace. Now, should we have a reduction in weapons? Should we have more safeguards? Would I like to see some of the rogue countries that have it not have it? Uh, yes, to all of those. But but the idea of of eliminating all nuclear weapons, the answer is you're not going to eliminate all nuclear weapons. And when there are three nuclear weapons, they are infinitely more dangerous than if there are 50,000. Mm. Um, we have a, a viewer who wants to follow up on one of the stories that you that you told earlier about the Russian spy operating out of Los Alamos. What happened to that spy? Was, was he ever caught? Oh, yes. He was caught and uh, imprisoned. And I think he was put to death. Yes, I believe so. Klaus Fuchs. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I, th- I think he did get the death penalty. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, that was just sort of interesting. Uh, one of the great things about the book, uh, for those of you who will, who will buy it and read it, is this part at the end where you go through the stories of people and up to the present day, really, it, 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 those who have survived, many have passed away. Uh, but, but that piece of it, I think, is, is extremely interesting. So there's a number of uh, questions here that uh, don't necessarily relate to the book, but relate to what you do. Uh-oh. 
Well, gee, we're out of time. No, oh, it's okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to ask a few of these because they're, they're kind of fun. Um, <laughs> fun for you. Well, this will be fun for you too. How, how you keep your composure when people won't answer your questions? Well, we don't have subpoena powers. I don't have a nightstick. Um, you know, when I'm doing uh, Fox News Sunday and I, I do it live, except in the rare occasions when we pre-tape an interview, you know, I, I, I think the audience is pretty smart. And I'll ask a question once or, or twice. And, and if I do a third time, which is rare, if it's obvious they haven't answered the question, I figure the audience gets it, that they're just not going to answer the question. I can't make them. Uh, I'm frustrated by it. But I guess I kind of feel that there is a relationship between me and the audience that if you know, they're, they're smart enough to figure out if the person has answered it or not answered it particularly. And I have not, I've been, uh, you know, absolutely willing to do this to say, well, that's very interesting, but you didn't answer the question. So let me ask it again. You, you were, you had the honor, as I noted in, in our intro of, of moderating one of the presidential debates in 2016. What was that like? And do you think we're going to have uh, general election debates this year? I do. I certainly hope so. I think they're very important. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have. I feel like I've done almost everything in in the business. Uh, I've covered a White House for six years. I've, I've, as you noted, I've been uh, interviewed a lot of uh, foreign leaders, and uh, in in July of 2018, uh, spent 35 minutes face to face with uh, Vladimir Putin, including handing him the indictment of uh, the Russian uh, military intelligence for how they had interfered in the American election. He was not too pleased with that. Uh, but I will say that when I got, and, and I was going to be the first Fox, pers- Fox journalist to moderate a presidential debate, uh, there were moments when I was just overwhelmed uh, with, with stress about it. it. It is, and when you think that it's, you're, first of all, you're going to be part of you know, I've done a lot of uh, primary debates, including with uh, one of your former bosses, Mitt Romney. Uh, and I, you know, you get kind of used to those. But when it's a general election debate, and this was the last general election debate, Clinton, Trump, 80 million people, uh, 20 days before one of them is going to become president, there were times when uh, the stress just washes over you like a wave. So, I was in the wings just before the debate. It was in Las Vegas, and the the chair of the, the of the uh, commission on presidential debates was doing the sort of setup for the for the audience. And I'm standing in the wings, and I I literally look up and I say, "Dear God, if you get me through the next ninety minutes, I promise I will never ask you for anything." So anyway, I get out. Uh, I, I have to kind of talk up the crowd, warm up the crowd for a few minutes. I look and, you know, there's, uh, Bill Clinton and Chelsea Clinton over on this side and, and, uh, Melania and Ivanka Trump over on this side. You know, it's like kind of, uh, uh, a surreal experience. And then you sit down and you introduce them and the two of them come on stage. And I'd say for about the first four or five minutes, it was, it was kind of an out of body experience. I kept hearing this person ask questions and, I did, I couldn't quite. Who's that? Oh, it's me. I'm the one asking the questions. But then I settled in and I had a good time, uh, and I thought it was a good debate. Uh, it it was well received and serious. In any case, so the debate ends. I shake hands with uh, Secretary Clinton, with Mr. Trump. I walk off and uh, I get to, into the wings and I get to that that point where that that place where I had said my prayer before, and I look up and I say, "Dear God, I know what I said." But could I please have another debate in four years? So <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I, I put myself on the record. Let's hope. Let, let, let's hope he responds affirmatively again, or she. We, we only have time for one more one more question, and and I want to go back to the book and, and ask you what was your favorite part of writing it? Because it, it, it you you had to you know done so much research and so much thinking about the narrative. What was your what was your favorite part of it? Well, you know. Uh, I would say that that writing a history, and I'm sure there are some people out there who are kind of laughing because they've written a lot more books than I have. But I can say this as having written this one book, it is almost a, a, a bipolar experience. There are such highs and such lows. And, 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 you know, there are days when it just seems like an endless slog and how am I going to marshal all this material and put it together? And then there are days when 
you come across a fact or an anecdote or something in, in somebody's diary, and it so enhances the story. Um, just one, one little story and as just an example. So uh, Truman, Truman hated Potsdam. He really didn't like being away from home. It was hot. Uh, there was no air conditioning in what they called the little White House, his villa in the, in the town of Babelsburg, right near Potsdam. Uh, they didn't have any screens on the windows, so the mosquitoes would come and, and give them all a working over, in addition to the fact that they were trying to decide the world's fate. Uh, Stalin wouldn't give an inch on anything. Uh, Churchill would go on and on. And then he had to go back to England and found out that he had been beaten in the general election that had taken place just before and Clement Attlee came back, and he now took over as the head of the British delegation. And at one point, uh, Truman is in, a, in, in a, uh, his car, presidential car, going back to uh, the little White House after a session, one of these sessions that accomplished nothing. And a colonel, maybe I'm trying to remember whether it's a colonel or a lieutenant, but anyway, a, a military officer comes, gets in the car and says, and, and there's no buddy riding with him. So it's just the two of them in the car and then people in, in the front seat of this limousine. And he says, you know, Mr. President, I know you're here uh, alone. And, uh, you know, if there's anything I can do, if there's anybody, you know, I could fix you. And Truman gets what he's saying. And he says, stop right there. I love my wife. I have no interest in any of that and never say anything like that to me again. And they ride back to the little White House in silence. Now, that's not the most important story in the book, but it's those little humanizing nuggets that you just, you know, as you're writing these, the, the, this, this book, you just think this is this engage, it gives you a feeling of what it was like to be there and what was in Truman's mind and who he was. Uh, and that's the joy of it. Well, thanks, Chris. This this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I'd encourage everyone out there to order your copy of uh, Countdown 1945, The Extraordinary Story of the 116 Days That Changed the World. Uh, thank you, uh, Chris, for your time, for, uh, for answering these questions. Also want to express our appreciation to all of our viewers joining us online. The club has a wide range of virtual programs coming up, so please visit the website for more information. I'm Lon He Chen, and this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Music